uh, as Michael mentioned, he brought up the word discipline. So that that's an important word. But um, one of the distinctions of this book is he purposely, um, it's not that he doesn't use the word disciplines, um, because he certainly does, but he uses the word grace for a reason. So his his point, if I could summarize it. So actually, let me let me show you my, my, my hand real quick. What I try to do is kind of give you a, a basis or a thesis or a summary of what this this author has written, why he's written it. Um, and then he breaks it up into a three scheme um, construct, basically. And then he fleshes that out under each um, each section. And so I'm going to work through as much as that as I can, even as I talk through this a little bit before I left with Amy. I'd like to get through all of this content, but the chances of that happening is not probably not going to happen unless you guys want to be with us till 11 or so. But that's not the point. The point of this is to um, first and foremost ensure that there's some application here that can be, and I think a key word is pervasive to our lives as believers. Um, the real question is, uh, you know, what are the disciplines of grace? What are the habits of, you know, grace? What are the, um, the, the practical things in our lives that we should be doing to help us grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ? And some of us have some of those disciplines and rhythms in our lives. Some of us have none of them. Some of us have a few but need others. Um, and so there's going to be a part of this or some or all of this that is going to be applicable to all of us. Um, and so that being said, this is not meant to be exhaustive. Uh, he even says that in his book, it's meant to be an introduction. Another word he uses is an orientation. So it's kind of orienting or maybe reorienting our minds or hearts um, towards this. And so brevity is at its core. Um, and, and he's, in my opinion, brought a really simplified approach that helps you kind of jump into these, these topics and areas and then leads you into other works that I'll mention as well. Um, there's a number of great resources in addition to this. If you're just kind of embarking upon your journey of the disciplines, um, you can write these down. Uh, one most well-known spiritual disciplines for the Christian life, um, Donald Whitney, um, Tim Keller's book. Uh, it's called Prayer, Experiencing All in Intimacy with God. Um, and then John Piper's book back from the early 2000s. It's called When I Don't Desire God. So his point is this is a good introduction or orientation to build up to books like that. Um, however, it's important to understand that this isn't just a, a book uh, he wrote with, with no distinct contribution. Um, it absolutely has distinct contribution, and I think it's worth pointing those things out. So here they are in short. Number one, brevity, right? We live in a busy, fast-paced world. We lack time oftentimes. We'll talk about some of that tonight, but it's very brief. The chapters are written in such a way that you can read in one sitting. Um, I'm a pretty slow reader, and I read this in less than six days, honestly. I mean, it reads that fast. It's that accessible. Um, it's very, very practical and helpful. Uh, secondly, he does lay it out, as I mentioned, into a three, three-fold organizational scheme, whereas a lot of the other books I mentioned lay it out in 10 to 12 to 14 to 15 different disciplines. That's not bad, wrong, unhelpful. It's just different. Um, this, what he does is he takes three main groups. As you'll learn in a minute, I'll say these now, but I'll say them again. Um, basically hear his voice, have his ear, and be a part of his body, which would be word, prayer, fellowship, basically. So he breaks it up into a three-tier scheme, and then he fleshes out things underneath that that are practically, um, you know, the, the disciplines of grace or, or the habits of grace, as he would say. <clears throat> um, 
Third, and I think this is pretty important, he actually spends a lot of time structured on fellowship. None of the other resources that are very well known in this topic give a very extended section, much less a full chapter on fellowship. Um, it's not that they don't mention them or cover them at all, but he spends, in my opinion, a really, 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 really good amount of time and a very helpful amount of time on why fellowship is important. So here's the deal, and I'm going to steal his hope and prayer. Here's what he says. My hope and prayer is that the reader would find these means of grace practical, realistic, and desirable in our pursuit of our joy in Christ and his glory, that they would serve us with simplicity, stability, confidence, power, Enjoy. So, in short, we want this, as Michael mentioned, to assimilate into our lives. Maybe not all of it, maybe not all of it at once, but I want tonight, my goal is for you to walk away with one or some things that you're like, hmm, it's pretty intuitive. I never thought of that. Or, man, that really stepped on my toes in a good, gracious, rebuking way. Or, man, I'm encouraged because I do have that kind of rhythm in my life, or maybe all of the above, right? So, if it's not practically applied to your life, what are we doing here, right? Um, so the first chapter, I'm going to be real honest. I know we're recording, but please don't send this to David Mathis. I think the title is kind of silly, but um, Grace Gone Wild. Um, okay, great, cool, maybe creative. Um, but here, here's, here's why I mention it. Um, a lot could be said about that chapter, but um, his, he, he talks a lot about God's grace. And, and once again, I don't mean to repeat you know, what Michael has already said, but great, God's grace justifies us. It draws us and justifies us. Um, it, it sanctifies us or continues our growth in Christ. And ultimately God's grace will glorify us, you know, on the other side of heaven. Um, but <clears throat> we have to understand that when we say habits of grace, these, these habits do not, they don't save you. They, they don't, they don't, gain you more favor with God. They don't, they don't twist God's arm to make you more of a lovable Christian. That, that's not at all what we're talking about. Um, what, what he lays out is this idea that after one has been saved, there are regular channels or regular pathways that we as believers should place ourselves in the way of. And I'll read a couple things that he says because I just can't say it better than him. Um, <clears throat> he says um, he has regular channels and we can routinely avail ourselves of these paths of blessings or neglect them to our detriment. And John Piper says the essence of the Christian life is learning to fight for joy in a way that does not replace grace. We cannot earn God's grace or make it flow apart from his free gift, but we can position ourselves to go on getting as he keeps giving, we can fight to walk in the paths where he has promised his blessings. I think that's a really important comment. We as believers are called to fight to put ourselves in the paths of God's graces through the disciplines. Um, another uh, well-known writer, Jonathan Edwards, and I mentioned this in our small group a few weeks ago, but he says, um, endeavor to promote spiritual appetites by laying yourself in the way of allurement. So we can't force Jesus' hand, right? Remember, he justifies, he grows us, he gives us the strength to grow. However, we can put ourselves along the paths of grace where we can be expectant of his blessing. 
Um, a couple examples, Whitney actually gives um, uh, our uh, Zacchaeus. Now you're humming the song. Um, he may have been a wee little man, as the author says, but he modeled this big reality by positioning himself along the path of grace. He couldn't force Jesus to do anything, but what did he do? He couldn't make grace flow automatically, but he could put himself by faith along the path where grace, capital G, by the way, was coming, right? Um, blind Bartimaeus was the same way. He couldn't order or cause the restoration of his sight in Luke 18, but he could station himself along the routine of grace where Jesus might give the gift as it pleased him. So that's the whole premise of this. That's why he uses the word habits of grace instead of disciplines, uh, because it's not about what we do necessarily. It's about who we're after, right? It's the power that we gain from him and it's who we're after. So um, the ultimate goal is the Sunday school answer. If you've been in school in any amount of time or the catechism's answer, right? The ultimate goal is Jesus. That's the ultimate goal, to, to look more like Jesus, to love Jesus, to know Jesus more, and to ultimately bring him more glory, which we know as believers is for our good. It's for our good and it's for our joy, period. That's the root of all this. So I'm going to say it probably a million times, but the point of these types of habits are not to earn more of God's favor. They are to place ourselves in the path of allurement, in the path of God's grace, so that we would live more in life in line with how the Lord has asked us to live and be a more faithful and fruitful minister of the gospel. Does that make any, does that make sense? Does that line up? All right, good. All right. So the first of three sections, I mentioned this a minute ago, and here's what I'm going to do. We're going to, I'm going to do my best to zip through here as well. This is, I'll, I'll probably spend a little more time here than the other two sections, not because um, it's necessarily more important, but it is very fundamental. Furthermore, I'll be really tired by the end of this. So I'll probably just get uh, more brief just to be flat out transparent with you. Um, so um, but hearing his voice is a creative way of saying the Bible, right? God's word, the scriptures, the way God communicates to us. And the way he articulates this initially is shaping your life with the words of life. Um, and, and what I really think warrants our time, and this is why I spend more time here, is before he gets into specific habits and practices of taking in the Bible, he, he spends some time with some fundamentals of, of you know, what, what the word of God is and, and why it matters. Um, and I think that's maybe hard for some of us, like me, I'm a list guy, you know, so I like, I actually use pen and paper and I have check boxes, you know, on my desk and my day's not done until I'm done with that. You may think that's old school, but, but whether you use physical pen and paper, you may relate that you have to-do lists and you just want to be told sometimes, like, here's the list of do's. I just want to do them and I want to get them done and check, 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 right? And we know we're guilty of that sometimes. So what he does first is he says, we must first see the scriptures as a general principle on their own. What does he mean by that? Before the Bible was printed or bound, consider the concept of the Bible that it's God's word. I mean, simplistically, God speaks. He reveals himself to us. He communicates with us as a well-known Philosopher John Frame, Christian philosopher John Frame would say, his word is powerful, authoritative, and it's a self-expression. So I, I just want to like press our minds in just a little bit for a minute to this idea that, that the one who created us and sustains us 
moment by moment, has expressed himself to us in human words. Like, just let that sit for a second. It, it's not picking up a book for school. It's not picking up even a good Christian book. It, it is literally the God who has created all things and sustains all things. It's, it's he who has communicated to, to us in his written word, and, and it's vital that we listen. It's vital that God's word is pervasive in our daily life. It's, 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 it's necessary for us in our, as we grow into the likeness of Christ. Um, he, he, uh, and I'll read a number of these quotes tonight, <clears throat> so get used to it. Um, but uh, <clears throat> he says, the other principal means of grace, which are prayer and fellowship, which we'll talk about, while equally essential, are not as fundamental as this one. Creation, Genesis 1, and new creation, 2 Corinthians 4, 2 Corinthians 4 both begin with the voice of God. He initiates and does so by speaking. This self-expression of God is so deep and so rich and so full that it is not just personal, but it's a person. And so I just think it's really important for us as we kind of approach this idea of spending time in God's word to understand that we're not just reading a book. We are literally being given a self-expression of who God is, period. And, and that's really, really important. So as we think about the word as a general principle, he gives a few helpful insights. He says, number one, the word is incarnate. Here's an interactive question by anyone. What do I mean by the word is incarnate? What, what does that mean? Who's the word? Jesus, that's it. That was a softball. I only got answers here. Maybe you're all on, uh, on mute. That's okay. I'll give you that one. But Jesus is the word. He's the word embodied, right? He's the grace of God incarnate. He is the divine word for our souls, and we need those. And so there's some questions of how do we access him? Now that he's sitting at the right hand of the Father, how do we access him? Well, he's revealed himself to us in his word. Secondly, the word evangelical or the gospel word. The gospel word is the message of Christ. It's the center of the scriptures. It's the narrative that has unfolded from Genesis to Revelation right? And it's culminated in Christ. So the word evangelical, it's, it's, it's the word that not only brings conversion initially, but it brings fruit and growth in our life, says Colossians 1. So the word changes everything for the Christian, and we must hold fast to it, especially in the midst of this crooked and perverse world that we live in. I mean, it doesn't take you but a, about a millisecond to look around at our world and say, what in the heck is going on? And if we are not sustained and, and, and our lives are not uh, literally saturated with God's word, we're in trouble. We're in real trouble. Third, the word written, simplistically, we need the scriptures as God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible revelation of himself. So we've got this foundational perspective of the word of God. When, when we need to pursue the word, we don't just need to pursue it as a book or as a, an act of study, although those are a part of it. Uh, we need to pursue it as a, as a personal, living, acting, breathing word that is God expressing himself to us. And this type of, of this word should be pervasive in all of life. That, that's why we prioritize the word of God in our preaching. That's why we prioritize the word of God in our prayer. That's why we prioritize the word of God in our small groups. That's why we prioritize the word of God in how we make decisions and how we pray for wisdom and discernment and how, how, who we marry. The word of God is not subjective. It's an objective self-expression from the holy 
and live in God. And that, that is absolutely important because it will 100% inform how we pursue a, a discipline or a habit of grace in, of, of the word of God. Um, he, uh, he, he mentions this concept of preaching the gospel to ourselves. Maybe that's a new concept to you. Maybe it's not. I don't have enough time to spend as much time as I think it warrants. Um, but, but I'll give you these kind of tidbits. He says, in our sin, we constantly find our responses to life in our fallen world to be disconnected from the theology we confess. Anger, fear, panic, discouragement, and impatience stalk our hearts and whisper in our ears a false gospel that will lure our lives away from what we say we believe. Let that sit. I mean, that's, that's, that's our life. We're prone to wander. But he says this, the battlegrounds between the ears most of the time. What is it that is capturing your idle thoughts? What fear and frustration is filling your spare moments? Will you listen to just yourself or will you start talking? Will you start preaching? Not letting your concerns shape you, but forming your concerns by the power of the gospel. That's another part of God's word. It's living, it's moving. We'll talk about even the Holy Spirit's work and the corporate body's work and the word of God. But it's not just a book. It's God. It's God's promise to us, and it's its self-expression to us. Um, he moves into a few more, few more topics: um, reading for breadth and study. I think um, a couple important things, things to point out here, and I'll, I'll throw out some questions, non-rhetorical. So feel free to answer. Um, he, he he talks about this idea of an inductive Bible study method, and I think that's important. Um, if you want to know more about that, just ask Michael. Um, but uh, but in short. I mean, it, it, we don't have to, you know, with risk of oversimplification, it's important to have some fundamentals in language. You know, we, we understand that. Um, subjects, verbs, objects, conjunctions, us Georgia boys don't know what half of those are. Um, but I know they're important in some capacity. So uh, I think English is important, and, and it's probably a good, good idea at some point in your life for someone to lay out a, a basic inductive Bible study method. Real simply put, observation, interpretation, application. Like that's pretty straightforward. But what I want to do is, is make sure we understand that there's, there's really no replacement for what may seem very simplistic, but yet very profound. There's no replacement from learning to, to, to read your Bible than to just simply do it. Um, just do it. Nike kind of coined that term years ago. You don't hear it much anymore. Um, Emily used to design quite a bit. And on one of her coffee cups, she has an Elizabeth Elliott quote. I used it. Two, day, two days ago, do the next thing. Sometimes we just need to do the next thing. The best way to learn what's next to do is to just do it. And, and so, you know, the best way to learn to read the Bible is to read it for yourself. You may not understand it. You may fumble through it. Um, one challenge he puts out there is to ask an older saint, do you have a method or a science or a nice, clean, formulated process of reading your Bible? And likely the answer is going to be no most of the time. It's pretty simple. The answer will be probably no, and they'll likely say they just learned over time that there's much more art to it than science, right? So simply put, to, to, in, to, to start this habit of grace or this discipline of God's word is to just do it. I mean, legitimately start doing it. And, and how do we do that? We've got to find regular time and a regular place to do that. Don't, don't gloss over the simplicity of that. Um, you plan everything else in your life, unless you're a father of five and 
I don't even have a flipping clue what's going on half the time. But I'd be willing to bet that most of what you do in your life, you plan out. You know, like, you know where you're going most of the time before you just get in the car and drive away. But how often do we not plan a time or a place to sit down and study God's word? And I know that sounds so silly, but it, I mean, it honestly should, you know, smack a toe around a little bit. I mean, it, it, it's, it's really foolish of us, honestly. And, and so we have, this is where it begins. We have to do it. You just have to do it. And I'm not browbeating. I'm just saying, if you don't start, it'll never begin. And so let your mind and heart be captured and thrilled by God himself communicating with you through his written word. How do you let your mind do that? You've got to find a time and a place to do it. And you've got to put that in some kind of plan, whether you're a calendar person or even more spontaneous, you've got to find a way to do it. Um, he, he warns us against the check the box mentality um, because what he does is, is as he pushes you to the word, he asks you to really spend some time lingering over the text. Um, you know, we'll talk a little bit in a minute about meditation. And we'll all sit in Ian style and put our palms to the, to the, I'm just kidding. Um, but um, sometimes we'll get on these check boxes again, right? So TCC, we've offered you a year Bible reading plan and maybe you're behind, uh, maybe you're ahead, but it's kind of nice to check that box, right? And, and maybe you, for that day, you have 40 verses to read. It's okay to get to verse 20 and something really astonish you and you stop and linger and meditate and then you're done for the day. Like, that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. Don't, don't miss the forest through the trees. Like, read God's word, period. Um, he, he defines study. He defines meditate, studying. He kind of walks through this idea of seeking to understand. So you're not just reading mindlessly, but you're seeking to understand. And then he defines meditation as emotionally um, glory in what you're understanding. So it, it's a much deeper lingering, marinating, if you will, if you like, if you're a meat eater. Um, come to my house and I'll, I'll let you taste some marinated meat. Um, but I really like how he articulates it. He says, think of your Bible reading as finding a spot to settle down for a few minutes and discover. Go for breadth and depth, pose questions, consult resources, capture brief reflections and words or diagrams. He gives this illustration of, uh, with yard work, raking and digging is what he says. Um, raking is relatively easy. You can, I mean, I could even give my give a rake to most of my kids, and they they would probably do some benefit, um, maybe more hurt than benefit, but some benefit. Um, and it's it's work, but it's not back breaking necessarily. Whereas digging takes a shovel. It's back breaking. It's tiring, but you're likely going to find much more than what's on the surface. And in, in the words of Piper, Piper he says, um, you could find some diamonds. In fact, he says um, about his children. If, if I can find his quote here. Um, oh, the riches of understanding that come from lingering in the thought over a new idea or a new, new expression of an old idea. I would like this book to be read in the same way that the Apostle Paul wanted his letters to be read by Timothy. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Every book worth reading beckons with the words, think over what I say. When my sons complain that a book is too hard to read, I say, raking is easy, but all you get is leaves. Digging is hard, but you might find diamonds. 
And so he basically says, don't forget your shovel. It's okay. Don't, don't get caught up in checking the box and finishing it. It's fine. You're, you're going to be okay. Uh, dig deep and, 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 you know, linger over the text. Um, there, there's a resolution mentality here, right? Um, be resolved to read the Bible. And, and it's going to sound a bit repetitive, um, but at risk of oversimplification, this can't be overstated. You won't develop a habit if you don't begin. Most of church history, believe it or not, they didn't have a physical Bible to read. Um, they had to go somewhere and sit under someone that read the Bible to them, right? Now we have our own personal copies and access to the Bible is galore all over the place. Um, we don't have to gather together and, and be read the scriptures by someone. We can do it on our own. Um, and so, I, I, you know, reading your own copy of the Bible daily is honestly not, not a law of every believer. Um, most Christians, as I said, didn't have that option. However, the habit of daily Bible reading can be a marvelous means of God's grace. Why is that? Because of a, of a number of the reasons we've already talked about, knowing God more and meeting him more. Um, but why would you not do it, I guess, is the question. Like, why would we not read God's word? I can probably answer that from my perspective. Selfishness, time management, lack of discipline, selfishness, selfishness. Sorry, did I say selfishness? You know, self-focused, right? I mean, that's a part of my life. Um, but, but ultimately, why would we not read God's word? Like, why would we plan everything else in our life and set aside time and place to do everything else and spend our money on everything else and not spend time in God's word? It just doesn't make any sense. Check this out. I thought it was cool. Um, does anyone have a guess? And don't Google it, Oscar. Um, how many hours does the average, does it take to, for an average person to read the Bible cover to cover? What do you think? Any guesses? Hours. hours. 365. There's one answer. 365. Anybody else? 500. 500? Take me that one. Nope. 30, 30, 100 hours. 35. Hours? Yeah. How many, uh, Lenny? Uh, like 85. I think it's, I think it might be in the teens. <clears throat> 70 hours. Seven. <laughs> 70 hours. I read quick ish. The thing it may take 100. So I'd probably be somewhere where Emily, Emily throws out there. So in other words, so, so get this, that's less time than the average American watches TV in a month. So here's my question to you. Stop watching TV for the whole month and only read your Bible. Just kidding. I know that's hard to do, but, but here's something more realistic for you. You know, if you read the Bible for 15 minutes a day, you'd finish it in less than a year. Think about that. Like that's how much most of us probably don't prioritize real Bible intake, right? God's gracious. You don't have to cry about it, but, but let it sink in for a minute, right? It's really important to think about these things because God is expressing himself to us in written word and we, we're treating it as if it doesn't matter oftentimes, right? Um, so I don't want to close our time discussing Bible intake uh, without talking about the role of the Holy Spirit. Um, there's a lot that could be said here, but the Holy Spirit is a real person, um, in case you were wondering, third part of the Trinity. It's important to remember that as believers, when we read the scriptures, something influential, although invisible, as we hear God's word read or spoken or when we read and study. Listen to this that he writes. Um, I just can't, I can't, I can't read it enough, to be honest with you. 
As much as we want to master the habit of Bible intake to trace the lines of cause and effect from some action we take to some resulting satisfaction of our soul, the helper resists our effort to objectify grace. Listen to this. He lingers in silence. He labors mysteriously outside our control. He imperceptibly shapes us this morning to make us into who we need to be this afternoon and next week. His hands act untraceably as he molds our minds, hews out our hearts, whittle out our wills, and carves out our calluses. He not only hovers over the waters in Genesis 1 and over all created space, standing ready to execute the Father's will and extend the reign of the glorified Son, he also hovers with special vigilance over the divine word, whether incarnate, spoken, or written, standing by to awaken dead souls and open blind eyes and warm cold hearts, ready to bear witness about the Son, John 15, 26, ready to glorify him, John 16, 14. The Holy Spirit is with you when you read the Bible. Um, there's, as I said, there's so much more that could be said, but when, when you get alone to read the scriptures, you're not alone. He's there and he is a mysterious goodness. And so I, I promise you, even when you don't feel like it, we'll talk about kind of a good order of Bible intake, you know, meditation and prayer. But if you don't feel like reading the Bible, then pray. Pray that God will give you the strength and the desire to do that and read it even when you don't feel like it because there's a, there's a mysterious, invisible work going on there for those of us who are in Christ as we open God's word. Um, he, he works through a couple more sections here um, about God's word. Um, what I'll do is I'll zip through a couple of these and then we'll take a five-minute little breather so you can go get some water and I'll start right at maybe even four minutes because I, I know I want to be cognizant of time. He calls this section, warm yourself at the fire of meditation. Don't, don't get too close, you'll burn. Um, but this, this chapter is all about meditation. And he does a really, really good job um, at defining meditation, right? This is probably one of the most underutilized and underappreciated disciplines um, next to fasting and silence and solitude that we, we don't do in the, in the, in the church. We at least don't spend a lot of time talking and thinking about it. Um, you know, a big part of this, I think, is because a lot of world religions have kind of seized this. Um, and new schools, new age thinking have, have kind of, um, you know, changed this into more, more of the practical effects, which, you know, be a better you and empty your mind and have lower blood pressure. And by the way, I'm not saying that spending time with the Lord won't have some of those effects. Um, but those are not the ultimate goals. Um, what he does is he defines meditation and he says, Christian meditation, however, is fundamentally different from the meditation popularly co-opted by various non-Christian systems. It doesn't entail emptying our minds, but rather filling them with biblical and theological substance, objective truth outside of ourselves, and then chewing on that content until we begin to feel some of its magnitude in our hearts. He walks through a lot of key texts. Meditation is mentioned all throughout the scriptures. It's so funny we don't talk about it. It's like we're afraid of it because we really believe that like you have to sit Indian style in a way that most of us probably can't, especially not at my age, and put our, hand, our palms to the ear. You know, um, but that's not meditation at all. <laughs> like that's not what the scripture is referring to when it says meditation. I mean, 
you know, Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward the evening in Genesis 24, Joshua 1, 8, after he's been told to be strong and courageous, meditate on it day and night. Psalm 1, right? Blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord. He meditates on it day and night. Psalm 119 is ate up, as we would say where I'm from, with meditation, like on and on and on. It's all over the scriptures. Um, if God's old covenant instruction could be so precious to the psalmists, how much more should the new gospel covenant captivate our meditation? And so Whitney, as well as a lot of Puritans would say, um, as, uh, as well as others, that meditation is the missing link um, in, in our growth a lot of times in, in the disciplines. And so here's, here's the method that would generally be recommended. It's not the only way, and you're not doing it wrong if you don't do it this way, but I would recommend read God's word, meditate, and then pray. Um, George Mueller said at one point, pretty well-known um, Christian, Christian guy, um, that he found that once he began to marinate before he prayed, his prayers were much more God-centered and much more fruitful. So what does meditation look like? You open God's word, read a few texts, passages, verses, whatever it is. Something sticks out to you, man. You're just really struck by it, or maybe it doesn't. Maybe you just choose something, and you, you begin to let that ponder. You linger there. You let it saturate. You let it roll over, roll in the tides of what you've learned, and it begins to kind of, maybe you jot it down. Maybe you diagram it. Maybe you put it in a journal, um, but it's, it's ever before your mind, and then, and then you get to the prayer portion. You begin to pray like that. You pray, and, and it's it's not, it doesn't just stop there in your devotional life. Maybe it continues pervasively throughout the rest of the day. And before you know it, that truth, man, it's, it's sunk deep. Like, and coupled with the work of the Holy Spirit that I've already said is with you as you read God's word, you're being changed, you're being molded. And man, that's at the top of mind, right? That's really important, really, really important. And we live in such a fast-paced, distracted, self-saturated life that we just don't do it. A lot of times we, we get stuck back into that check the box mentality. Oh, nope. I got to stay up. You know, Michael's going to get me. If I, don't, <laughs> if I don't stay on that annual Bible reading, which I'm behind on, by the way. Um, I got to stay on it. I got to stay on it. I got just stop for a minute and, and, and let it saturate you. Let it marinate. Let it, let it roll in deep. Let it, let it change how you think and pray and breathe and live and act. Um, Christian meditation begins with our eyes in the book or our ears open to the word, or our mind stocked with memorized scripture. So he'll go into memorizing scripture, but it's got to be an intentional thing, I believe. Um, he gives a really practical way um, to um, kind of integrate this into your life. Um, but I think based on what we've kind of talked about, you can, you can get creative. Bottom line is, think about it. I mean, just think about it. Once you read the scriptures, think about it. Don't just study for the objective truth. Don't just study for the deeper rooted meaning or the chiastic structure or parsing out the Greek verbs. That's all great. I'm sure all of you do that. Every week prior to Michael preaching, you go and you lay out the chiastic structure and you parse the Greek verbs and you're just prepped to be learners of the word. I know you all do that. I'm grateful for that. But don't just do that. Let it marinate. Think about it. Let it roll over in your mind and then pray. Pray after that. So, um, he talks about the application of God's word and then memorizing God's word. A million things I could say about this, but here's what I'll choose to say. A lot of people, when it comes to the application of God's word, believe that every time you open the scriptures and you read a passage or a verse, that there then should be an application. 
Sometimes that's true. And I think with well-intentioned, that's been said and taught. But it's not always true. And I think he uses a few different people, but Piper does a really good job that he brings out. He brings First, he gives us kind of a reality of life. More than 99% of what you and I do on a daily basis, decisions about this or that, they happen without any immediate reflection. Like, we just act. So our lives flow from the kind of person we are, right? So the, these acts that we don't reflect on, they come from who we are at our core. And so what Piper does a really good job at is he says, um, it, it, he asks not that God give us simple obedience to a clear to-do list of commands, but that he gives us wisdom and discernment as we encounter life's many choices, that we would be transformed internally, right? That we would become more of the person that Christ wants us to be because we become what we behold. What we behold in life affects what we spend our money on and what we do with our time and how we behave when things are hard and how we behave when things aren't hard and how we behave when we are just neutral. And so a better way of looking, I think, according to this dude, it's pretty cool dude, um, is, is when, when we ask for application of God's word, we are asking him to change what we behold, change who we are at our core, because out of that then flows the application of our life. Does that make sense? Piper says, a godly life is lived out of an astonished heart, a heart that is astonished at grace. We go to the Bible to be astonished, to be amazed at God and Christ and the cross and the grace of the gospel. The kind of application most important to pursue in encountering God's word is such astonishment. Press the scriptures to your soul. Pray for the awakening of your affections. Bring the Bible home to your heart. It's really just another way of commending meditation. They go hand in hand. Application and meditation go hand in hand. Um, last thing he, uh, he throws out is, is the memorization of scripture. Um, of course, he, he spends a lot of time talking about um, the, the, the Bible is for us, but it's not mainly about us. Um, we come most deeply uh, because of whom we will see, not because of what we must do. And so we become more like Christ the more we see him, the more we love him, the more he changes us, and the Spirit of God does all that. But he works through this idea of memorization of Scripture, right? Scripture memory would be the way Donald Whitney would, would bring it about. Um, it also goes hand-in-hand hand with meditation. If you think about it, um, you know, if you listen to music at all, maybe you learn the words of a song, and then if you've learned the song because you kind of like the beat, I don't listen to words a lot of times if I like the beat, but then I start listening to the words. I'm like, oh, I'm kind of singing. I just probably know what I'm singing. And then I start thinking about what I'm singing. I'm like, oh, crap, that's not really good. Or maybe that's really good. Like, I, that's really helpful to me. But I, I'm like kind of, it's that's, that's, that's meditating on it, if you will, in sorts. Um, what's interesting about memorization is the more you meditate on the scriptures, the easier it is to, to memorize it. The, the, the more that you think on them and let that linger in your mind, the more natural it is for God's word to be memorized. Um, now, here's, here's the practical application that I think is really helpful because um, he does give five tips that I'll give you in just a second. Um, but how many people here have ever tried to start memorizing scripture and they're like, man, I am a failure life and I just give it up. I mean, I, I assume in some capacity you've, you've probably experienced that. He, he, um, 
he does, I, I shared this with a friend the other day. This is pretty simple, but fairly profound for me. Um, he says very simply, um, instead of memory of scripture being about decades from now and storing up this huge repository of scriptures that you'll always remember and that you'll be ready in season and out of season to give an account for the gospel and, you know, counsel someone through a hard time and you want to stockpile all this because you want, you want, you know, them to be imprinted upon your heart. What, what if we just memorize scripture for today? Like, like, like why are we so focused on this huge repository? Cause most of our memories are terrible, right? Or maybe our, our, we're just too distracted. What if, what if your scripture memory looked like this? What if you, what if you open the word of God at 530 in the morning? Cause I know all of you guys are up that early and you read for 15 or 20 minutes then you meditate on it, man, that really stuck out to me. So you're kind of processing it. It's really great. And then you get to your prayer time. And you might only do this for 15 minutes, right? You pray what you've meditated. And, and it's you, as, as you leave that time, it, it's continually rolling in your mind and rolling in your brain. You're thinking about it. It's coming up every couple hours. And you're like, man, I, I'd like to try to memorize that. And so you, you don't memorize all of it, but you get some of it. You at least get the gist of it. And, you know, if you're anything like me, I make up words anyway, so it doesn't really matter as long as you understand what I'm trying to say. And so I'm, like, figuring it out. It's kind of sticking to me. And you've committed, you know what? By the end of this week, the end of this two weeks, I want to memorize that passage of Scripture just, just because I, it's helpful to me. And then you, and then you memorize it, and, and maybe the 10th day, it sticks in your brain. And that afternoon, man, you, you, you have a pretty terrible day. Maybe you fall into some temptation or really angry with your kids or your, you know, spouse or someone approaches you with a problem or something happens in culture that just rocks you like just to the core. And the Holy Spirit brings that one single verse back to your mind for that day. And then maybe you forget it the very next day. What, 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 what if we thought about scripture memory like that? Like, like, why do we set ourselves on this big ascent? I'm not saying, maybe you have a much better memory than me. I had a professor in college that had two-thirds of the scriptures memorized. It was unbelievable, including Isaiah, by the way. He could just go. He was an MIT grad, um, pretty incredible guy, um, totally carved from a different tree than this guy, I can assure you. But most of us aren't like that. Like, don't, don't set yourself up for that guilt-ridden failure. Maybe you'll get there as you grow older and get, become more disciplined. But don't do that to yourself. Just memorize scripture for today. Whatever you look at this morning, try to put it in your mind for the day. That's, that's okay. It, it really, absolutely. It relieves a lot of pressure. Um, and and it, it can be very, very beneficial to you. Um, so he, he gives five tips. Diversify your picks. We know that, right? Think about different sections in Scripture. Um, take it with you during the day. I've kind of already mentioned that. Seek to understand, feel, and apply the text as you memorize it. That's a big part of the meditation piece. Um, turn your text into prayer. I, Amy and I, we've often done that historically, especially in the Psalms. It's really kind of fun sometimes because some of the words are kind of weird to try to put that into your own words in prayer. But it it really helps, just like putting in the song. It helps putting it into a, into a prayer. Um, and then memorizing the lot of the gospel. I can't overemphasize this. Um, 
we're always turning towards the Lord, and it's always about Jesus. So, um, you know, even the Jewish leaders who have memorized more of the Old Testament than any of us here ever will, more than likely. What did Jesus say to them in John 5? You search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. So we don't memorize scripture as a means of an end. Don't memorize scripture, say memorize scripture. Memorize because you want more of Christ. So the last thing he talks about is being uh, resolved to be a lifelong learner uh, in the Bible intake section. I'll let that stand on its own because I know you're all going to go get this book tonight and you're going to start reading it tomorrow. Um, but be humble. I mean, that, there's a lot of other things he says, but we all are called to be learners, to humble ourselves. We don't know everything. And so resolve yourself to be a lifelong learner in a million capacities. Um, and there's a, there's a lot of good tips he puts in there. So, all right, uh, I've been going strong for about 35 minutes. I'm going to give you four minutes. If you want to take a break, tell a joke, use the restroom, get some water, coffee, and then we'll kick into um, the section on prayer. Cool? There's so much that could be said here. Um, and I know I keep saying that, but I, I was honest with you transparently up front that in preparation of this, it was what I wasn't going to say versus what, you know, I was going to. Um, he, he basically says he, he reveals himself to us. He expresses his heart to us through the word, um, but he doesn't just speak. He wants to hear from us. Um, the speaking God not only has spoken, but he also listens. He stops, he stoops, he wants to hear from you. He stands ready to hear your voice. And so he says, Christian, you have the ear of God. And I, I just think sometimes we get so caught up in how we pray and the words we say, and he talks some about this, um, that we forget really what we're doing. You know, we, we have the ear of the almighty creator. Simply put, he defines prayer as talking to God. We understand that. Um, but we're not just merely talking to God, but we're responding to the one who has initiated towards us. Like he's spoken first. And he then chooses to listen. Um, he, he, he mentions this, this idea that praying should not be about getting things from God, um, but simply put, it should be getting God. We've talked, a, there's going to be some repetition here, but knowing God more, knowing more of him, getting him, um, you know, born in response to his voice, prayer makes its request to God, but is not content to only receive from God, prayer must have him. And so the whole root of prayer, the whole fundamental purpose of prayer is to have God, is to, is to know him more. It would be foolish for you to say you have any relationship with me, yet we never listen and talk. I mean, that's that would be dumb. I wouldn't believe you because I wouldn't know you and you wouldn't know me. Um, and so ultimately, the, the whole point of prayer is to know God. Um, there's a C.S. Lewis quote that I'm going to read. Um, it's long, but it's worth it, I think. He says, prayer in the sense of petition, asking for things, is a small part of it. Confession and penitence are at its threshold. Adoration, its sanctuary. The presence and vision and enjoyment of God, its bread and wine. The great purpose of prayer is to come humbly, expectantly, and because of Jesus, boldly into the conscious presence of God to relate to him, to talk with him and ultimately enjoy him as our great treasure. And I, I sometimes I fear that we forget that. 
I mean, it's not wrong to ask things of God by any means. And we've, we use the acts methodology here. He mentions that in this book. So it just validates that, you know, your pastors aren't dumb. Um, but you know, we can walk through that acronym in a second. Um, but sometimes it's like, yeah, we want to adore them. You know, yeah, we want to confess. Yeah, we want to thank, but we really want to get to the cosmic Coke machine. You know, I want to put my dollar bill in and I want my Pepsi or Coke or whatever you prefer. And, and it's not wrong to ask things of God. The word tells us to bring our supplications before him, but that's not the root of it. That's not the point of it. Um, interestingly enough, um, in Acts, we're told that they weren't just devoting themselves to, you know, the, the teaching of the elders and, and a number of other things, but they were devoting themselves to prayer. So there was this, uh, this whole idea, orientation of life that, that was a pervasive prayer life. Um, he, he, he lays it out in a number of different ways. Um, he, he, I mean, there's this private prayer and this corporate prayer and, you know, this prayer supplication and there's this, uh, you know, praying and fasting and, um, you know, set aside long prayer and this continual type of prayer throughout the day and praying for Dr. Pepper and Coke, you know, I mean, that's, that's all important, right? It's all, sorry, it's in the chat. They're like, in the, I forget, they can't see what you're writing. Um, they're like, what? Like, has he lost his mind? Um, yeah, they're, they're passing notes. And yeah, Bryce said stop passing notes in class. Yeah. Um, but so, so there's. It's all Michael, just so y'all know. It's all it's Michael. Just, we'll get to rebuke later. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Um, but but it's this orientation or this all-pervasive nature of prayer. And so what he does in this time of like having God's ears, he walks through praying in secret and praying with company and sharpening our affections with fasting, which goes hand in hand um, with, with prayer and journaling through praying, which would be a pathway to joy. Um, and then really just taking a break from the chaos, as he would call it, which is silence and solitude. Prayer is interwoven in all of that, right? It doesn't just mean that's all you're doing during those times. But prayer is a huge, huge part of those things. Um, and so the first part he talks about is praying in secret. Um, maybe you have little to no real private prayer life. Um, and as Francis Chan would say, rightfully so, his biggest concern for this generation is our inability to focus, especially in prayer. Um, and so it, it's, it's unfortunate that that's the case, but we've got to identify the issue and then make some changes through the power of the spirit. And that's one of the reasons that we talk through things like this. It's a practical application of how to make little changes. Um, he lays a foundational uh, framework of why we should have private prayer. Um, he says a lot here. Um, but I think one that's worth pointing out, I mean, he talks about how it, it's an infallible test of our spiritual integrity, right? So it's easy to pray in corporate sometimes because you can say the right words and maybe our motivation is our length or our tone or the topic or the mood, you know, how we affect others. And we can fall into that trap of trying to impress others when we pray. If, if you'd say you've never done that, you're probably lying. So we need to fight against that, right? But one of the reasons we pray privately is because it's an infallible test of our spiritual integrity. Closet prayer offers a test of authenticity. In other words, if we pray when nobody else is listening, 
then we have an integral relationship with Christ. If, if you have a prayer life, that's, that's a test to the integrity or authenticity of your love for Jesus because you genuinely want to know God more. You genuinely are approaching him from the perspective of a weak and needy believer who knows they need a relationship with the God of all grace. Um, it's not, there, there's no temptation to be showy or, or you know, have ill motive um, in the, for the most part. Um, he, he talks, John Piper talks a lot about um, revealing what we really desire. Your, your private prayer life helps you. you. You talk to God a lot differently by yourself. You're going to be a lot more open and honest. And the Lord knows those things already, but he wants you to lay them out to him. And so it, it's a remedy in, in, in a way that we're revealing what we actually desire and what we're actually struggling for. And then we're allowing God to, to develop that. Um, and, and then it's, it, it's note of a genuine relationship. Um, one other thing he points out is, is Jesus's private prayer life. Um, it's not like I didn't know this and you're going to know it too, but I don't know that I've ever thought about this. Jesus prayed all the time. He went off by himself and prayed all the time. Um, Jesus wasn't needy. He, he wasn't sinful. He, he didn't lack anything. Um, but he desired a fellowshipping relationship with the Father in such a deep, deep capacity that he did not forego a private prayer life. And, and I don't want to give you that Sunday school answer, but Jesus did it. So WWJD. I mean, I'm just saying, like, if here's the God of all grace, the God incarnate who lacks nothing, made time to have a private prayer life because he desired to have that kind of fellowship and relationship with the Father, um, probably a pretty good reason for us to do it. Um, he gives five practical examples. Create your closet. Um, go into the closet. Don't come out of it. Um, I had a good friend that had a really cool space like this. I probably would have fallen asleep in it, per, to be honest with you. But, like, he had the space under the steps physically. I had, like, pills in it and, like, candles. I'm like, I need to burn this place down or I'd be asleep. But it looked cool. And I'm like, but, but all jokes aside, his point is make a spot. Could be a clean desk, could be a place to kneel. Probably wouldn't recommend your bed, um, just saying. But a place that is your prayer place, like that's, it doesn't have to be exotic. And I'm not saying you can't pray in your bed. I'm just saying you're going to fall asleep, trust me. Um, but enough light to read and maybe even to take some notes. Um, and, and so make a place, create a closet, begin with the Bible. We talked about this earlier. Remember, pray, meditate, excuse me, read, meditate, pray, read, meditate, pray. Um, and so, in short, um, start with the Word of God. This is what Drew, I mentioned this earlier, but George Mueller said, um, for 10 years, he began each day with an immediate attempt at a fervent and extended prayer time, only to eventually learn how much richer and focused his prayers were when they came in response to God's Word. So begin with the Bible. Let that truth per pervasively affect how you pray. Um, and then the acts methodology, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. Um, that's actually uh, Martin Luther's setup, um, believe it or not. So it, it was not, you know, anyone that we know. Um, I kind of I know him. I feel like I kind of know Martin Luther, but I don't really know him. Um, uh, so we, we use that. If you want more information on it, um, we can certainly give you that. And then divulge your desires and develop them. I kind of mentioned this earlier, but you're going to lay those out in a private prayer time, and then you're going to let God 
you know, change them, especially if they're sinful or their desires that you might want, but you know, you want to know God's will for your life, you know, ask God to change those and develop you. Um, it's an unspeakable privilege to have the ear of God. I mean, then keep it fresh. Few things are as worthy of your attention and investment as the privilege and power of private prayer. So sometimes you journal, sometimes you memorize, sometimes you, you know, pray the scriptures, like, you know, change it up. Um, don't, don't keep doing the same thing. Um, he throws out some habits here. Um, that, that we don't have time to go through. I really like the, um, the section that he starts, uh, that he works through uh, praying with constancy and with company. It's this idea of corporate prayer. Um, we try to do that. You'll notice at TCC every week, we set aside a time and we're revamping that even still because we want it to be um, important and well done and something that encourages all of us and pushes us towards Jesus. Um, but Although it's important to have a private prayer life, it's also very important to pray in community. And I can promise you, I know it takes more planning and initiative, um, but the syncing of schedules and all the work it takes to get people together to pray together, it's worth every single minute. It's worth every ounce of effort. Um, it, it does a lot of things for us. Um, that he gives a lot of scriptures here that I, I just, I'm, I'm looking at time here and deciding what I'm going to deal with and what I'm not. Um, Here's the five counsels he gives for praying with company. I think these are these are helpful. Um, we should make it regular, right? Weekly, biweekly, planned. Um, it should be planned. Just as we should have some planned time for Bible reading and prayer time privately, this should be something that should be planned. That's why we have, like, the men's prayer. Women, you need to get on it. Uh, but the men, we have a prayer time. Uh, just kidding. But, but honestly, we have, that's why we plan out times for men and women alike, and even our church, as I said on Sunday, to have prayer time. Um, start with scripture. I won't go into that. Limit share time. This goes back to my comment a minute ago. I'm trying to implement this. Um, not, not, not to be rude, but especially at prayer time, how often can our time that needs to be spent in prayer be quickly cannibalized by us sharing? Because we got a lot in our minds and hearts. And it's not wrong to share that stuff, but man, before you know it, we've talked the whole time and we haven't prayed any. Um, how many times has that happened? Probably a lot. So encourage your people to share their requests by praying them. It's a really helpful tip. So maybe instead of talking your requests out, pray them. Um, or sometimes you ask them to say in one sentence. You know, that's a challenge oftentimes, but it can press us to be more disciplined and efficient in our communication. Third, encourage brevity and focus. That's that's goes along with I kind of got ahead of myself there. Um, and then pray without show, but with others in mind. Um, yeah, I was part of a prayer group where we all just had to pray our own prayer requests at work. Yeah, yeah. So that's exactly what he's talking about, Rebecca. Like, you know, I mean, there's a there's a level of corporate prayer where it helps you know others. Um, so, you know, obviously, we don't have to do that every time, but that can be a really helpful tip, which which he talks about. Pray your own prayers instead of making your request known in sentences. Yep. Yes. Limit share time. Encourage brevity and brevity and focus. Yes. And then five is pray without show, but with others in mind. <clears throat> Some personalities, especially, <laughs> need these regular prompts. But for gathering others up with with us in our praises, confessions, thanksgivings, and requests. It's important, right? Um, he, he gives some real helpful prophets. I'll throw out a couple. We learn how to pray better when we hear others pray. Um, we, we work out disciplines. 
Uh, there's added power. The scripture preaches that there's multiplied joy. You know, when I hear someone pray for something and then I hear a prayer request answered, that's, that's great. It's encouraging. Um, it creates unity in the body. Um, th there's a lot, there's a couple other things fruitful for ministry and mission. Um, that's pretty helpful. Um, and we know Jesus more together. It's not just about knowing Jesus more personally, but it's also about knowing more, more of Jesus together. Um, let's see here. Uh, he deals with fasting, journaling, and silence and solitude. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to skip journaling and silence and solitude because they're not important. Just kidding. Um, because we don't have time. Um, suffice to say, journaling is a great habit of grace that we can talk about more, that you should think about. It's not something you should necessarily do in every season of life or put some guilt-ridden. And it even talks about um, this idea of don't get caught up in your emotional journal and then try to make like life decisions all the time. Like let it, let it uh, marinate a little bit and maybe even seek some counsel of the body, but it can be very helpful for today, tomorrow, and even the past to reflect on what God has done. Um, and then taking break from the chaos. How often Amy and I have kind of gotten on this show called alone. Um, they are taken up to the Vancouver islands and they can only bring a certain amount of things and they're at least three, if not 10 miles separated by insurpassable waters and land. And um, the whole point is for them not to die or tap out, basically. Um, but they're by themselves, totally solitude. And what's interesting to me is what flushes most of them out is never food, water, or animals, because there's some crazy animals there. It's always between the ears, you know, because most of us will never think about this go or even a 24-hour period without connection to somebody else via cell phone or interaction. Like even those of you who live by yourself, you've always got that thing in your hand. So these people are 40, 50, 60 days in total solitude. We're not made for that. But there are times when we should break from the chaos and have a time to spend specific time in prayer, journaling, thinking about and reflecting on what God wants for our life and asking for discernment. Um, I'll finish with fasting because I'm not going to have time to get to fellowship. Um, Maybe we can kick into fellowship, and then he calls the commission the dollar and the clock, um, basically disciple-making, um, giving your dollar bills and giving your time, um, which um, we just won't have time to get, get there. So um, he actually recommends 50% tithe. Um, so I'm just kidding. Um, he, he actually goes, he goes for great. He's, he's a grace giver, which that's where Michael and I would fall, um, oftentimes sacrificial, but, um, you know, it's, it's something that, you know, you should do regularly. Um, so I'll finish with fasting. If you'll give me maybe till 32 after, um, and then I'll zip down through fellowship and maybe we can pick it back up later. Um, Fasting has fallen on hard times in our church life, not just TCC in general, but church life in general. Um, maybe you've done it, maybe you haven't. Maybe some of you have given up some stuff now, even for Lent. Um, I, I suspect that some of you have. Um, but I think really important uh, is, is to understand what fasting is um, and how it can, can benefit us. And he does a really, really, really good job. He gives this definition. He says, fasting is an exceptional measure designed to channel and express our desire for God and our holy discontent in a fallen world. It is for those not satisfied with the status quo, for those who want more of God's grace, for those who feel truly desperate 
for God. And so he walks through this, this understanding that fasting takes all kinds of forms, right? It's personal, it's communal, it's public, it's private, it's congregational, it's national, it's regular, it's occasional, it's partial, and it's absolute sometimes. Um, so, you know, Martin Lloyd-Jones would even say fasting doesn't have to be food, but it should be made to include abstinence from anything that is legitimate in and of itself for the sake of some special spiritual purpose. Um, Whitney, Donald Whitney's pretty helpful thinking through some of these. I'll list out some if you're taking notes. Um, we can fast for some of these purposes that uh, would be strengthening for prayer, seeking God's guidance, expressing grief, seeking deliverance or protection, expressing repentance and returning to God, humbling oneself before God, expressing concern for the work of God, ministering to the others need to the needs of others, overcoming temptation and dedicating yourself to God, and expressing love and worship to God. Um, that being said, I think I think expressing love and worship to God encompasses all of them. And he, he spends a lot of time on that. Um, that's, that's the essence of fasting. Whitney says this, fasting can be an expression, an expression of finding your greatest pleasure and enjoyment in life from God. Um, in fact, he says it puts an edge upon our devout affections, kind of makes it a little more poignant. Um, Jesus assumes we'll fast. You can look in, for instance, Matthew 6, 16 through 18. Um, it's so basic to Christianity um, Jesus doesn't say if you fast, but when you fast. Um, so as Christians, there should be some kind of rhythm of fasting in our life. Um, but it's important for us to understand as we've kind of talked about what the root of it is. Um, I, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to read this last part, and then um, I'll give you some practical advice on how to maybe integrate fasting into your life. And we'll, we'll be done, except for your comments. Um, Here's a, here's a uh, quote. Um, fasting walks arm in arm with prayer. Fasting is the hungry handmaiden of prayer who both reveals and remedies. She reveals the measure of food's mastery over us or television or computers or whatever we submit again and again to conceal the weakness of our hunger for God. And she remedies by intensifying the earnestness of our prayer and saying with our whole body what prayer says with the heart. I long to be satisfied in God alone. That burn in your gut, that rolling fire in your belly, aching for you to feed it more food, signals game time for fasting as a means of grace. Only as we voluntarily embrace the pain of an empty stomach do we see how we've allowed our belly to be our God. And in that gnawing discomfort of growing hunger is the engine of fasting, generating the reminder to bend our longings that were normally for food, Godward, and inspire intensified longings for Jesus. Fasting, says Piper, is the physical exclamation point at the end of the sentence. This much, O oh God, I want you. So when those growls in your belly come, it should remind you to think on the Lord and even pray. Um, I love how he finishes, um, you know, it's not whether you'll fast, but when, and he finishes this idea that when Jesus returns, fasting will be done. It is a temporary measure for this life and age to enrich our joy in Jesus and prepare our hearts for the next life and for seeing him face to face. When he returns, he will not call a fast, but throw a feast. 
that all holy abstinence will serve its glorious purpose to be seen by all for what it was. But until then, we fast. Um, so gives a couple tips. Start small. Uh, I wouldn't try a week fast. Um, I would maybe do a couple hours, maybe a meal, maybe a day. Um, you know, recognizing some of you may have dietary issues. Um, there are plans out there that can help you think through this. I mean, it doesn't always have to be food. Um, you can do a juice fast. There's a lot of different ways to do it. Um, plan what you'll do ahead of eating. I thought this was pretty intriguing to me um, because if you like food as much as some of us, you know, don't just fast to say, oh, I've got an iron will. Like plan things creatively. Um, a simple plan that will help a positive pursuit of God during fasting. I think that's really, really helpful advice. What are you going to do while fasting that are going to help you? That's going to help you positively pursue Jesus. Um, the third thing he says is consider how it will affect others. Uh, fasting is no license to be unloving. Um, so pay attention to what's going on. In fact, fasting should encourage you to love others more. Um, and so as you consider, uh, you know, fasting, consider others. Um, we, 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 uh, probably don't often think about that. Um, try different kinds of fasting. I mentioned all those personal communal, absolute congregational. Sometimes we'll call for a congregational fast. Um, you know, uh, fast from something other than food. Um, you know, we've talked about that a little bit and don't, I love this. Don't think about, uh, we can be hangry. Just eat a Snickers. Well, you can't eat a Snickers. Drink some water. Um, don't think of white elephants. He says, when you empty your stomachs, when your empty stomachs start to growl and begin sending your brain every feed me signal it can, don't be content to let your mind dwell on the fact that you haven't eaten. If you make it through with an iron will, that says no to your stomach, but it doesn't turn your mind elsewhere. It isn't true fasting. Christian fasting turns its attention to Jesus or some great cause of his in the world. Christian fasting seeks to take the pains of hunger and transpose them into the key of some eternal anthem whether it's fighting against some sin or pleading for someone's salvation for the cause of the unborn, a longing for a greater taste of Jesus. I just think that's, I, mean, I wrote in my notes here, let the growls of my heart, of my stomach, turn my heart and mind towards genuine worship and joy. Um, so really, really helpful. Um, the last section is on fellowship. He talks about the importance of fellowship. He talks about the importance of corporate worship, talks about the importance of sitting under solid and biblical teaching and preaching, which good news, your pastor teaches um, expositionally and seeks to be true of the scriptures. Um, he talks about the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Um, even, if, I mean, you don't get baptized again, right? Once you've been baptized as a believer, but don't look at it as a nuisance of the service that you've already done. Like you're watching a symbol, physical living symbol of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ again and again. You're being reminded what he's done in your life. You're rejoicing what he's doing in someone else's life because that person is being inaugurated into the body of Jesus. And now you in some capacity has some responsibility to them because you're a community. Um, and then growing in grace at the table, he talks about the Lord's supper, which we explain a lot when we do. Um, and he talks about rebuke, be a person that can receive rebuke and be a person that can give it. It's all done out of love for the glory of God. It's good for us. Um, and the goal of rebuke is for us to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. So I'll finish there.